So uh, this morning, we're going to talk about deception, and uh, particularly deception within Christianity, because uh, it's all over the place, and we can't talk about it in general. We'd hear for weeks, but we're just going to talk about the problem of deception and navigating our way through life and through our culture when our culture is awash with the deception. So with this in mind, uh, I want to start with the first section here and just talk a little bit about the reality of deception in this world. And the main idea here is that we navigate, right now, we navigate our lives through a world or through a sea where deception is pervasive, it's continuous, and it's normal. And uh, there's a little painting here of a ship navigating its way through a sea of icebergs. And uh, that actually would probably be pretty good if that was all we had to deal with in reality. The deception is probably a lot more denser. The icebergs would be closer. The rocky reefs would be closer to the surface, under, just under the surface of the water. And this is the world in which we live. So somehow, as Christians, we need to navigate our way through this culture, and especially in the area of of Christian doctrine and beliefs, and what do we believe, and how do we know what the Bible is actually saying. So the first thing it's helpful to know is that there is a very real being out there who Jesus referred to as the father of lies. Here's what he said. Here's what Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. And when you just pause there for a minute, ruler of this world, that means the governments, that means the media, social media, academia, just everywhere there is an ultimate ruler, not an ultimate ruler, mind you, there is a higher ruler still. And Satan does nothing but what he's permitted, only, he can only do what he's permitted to do, and God is the ultimate um, God, of this, God of everything. But Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world, and he said there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here's the point. We're dealing with a world ruler who has more power than any human government. And you see, he, Jesus said ruler of the world. He was including the governments in there. So Satan has more power than any human government, and this being is capable of a level, as the father of lies, he's capable of a level of complex deception that far exceeds any human capabilities. Satan is truly the master of misinformation, and that's who we're dealing with. That's the real enemy, God says. It's not people, it's not actually governments, it's not the media, it's not humans. The real enemy is Satan and the principalities and forces of darkness. So this is what we're dealing with. We're not just sailing across the sea with no crosswinds. There is a very severe crosswind that we're trying to sail across constantly every day, trying to blow us off course. There are hidden reefs, there are icebergs to hit, lots of things, and even within the church and within what we might call broadly Christianity. So uh, here's a current example. Every week I just deal with comments and guys who just believe science is the ultimate arbiter of truth. So let's just take a look at science. And Nature is probably the most prestigious science journal in the world. And if as a scientist you get a paper published in Nature, that's kind of like winning a gold medal at the Olympics. You can strut around and brag about your article in Nature. I don't have any articles in Nature, by the way. Uh, but there was in 2012, there was a, land, there was a paper in uh, Nature 
that revealed that in hematology and oncology, there were, they tested a, a number of landmark papers in these fields, and they found that 89% of them could not be replicated. This started a lot of controversy in the scientific world. Well, was this a one-off deal? Is it just these disciplines that are having problems? And a lot of studies were done. I have a bibliography of probably at least 20 or 30 different articles that came out around that time and since then to talk about the problem of irreducibility in science and in the humanities is even worse. But in 2017, Nature put out another article five years later and it said, and I quote, numerous studies, most recently in psychology and cancer biology have confirmed that failure to replicate published findings is the norm. The phrase the norm means this is, this is the majority of papers that you will see in journals of science or psychology cannot be reproduced. They're bogus uh, to varying degrees. And um, certain fields in science, to be fair, are worse than others. Physics, for example, is, is a little bit better because you actually have to have math equations that people can do and run and work out. And if you're making mistakes, you're going to get exposed. But the same article said, here's the reason. It, it, it classified the reason as, and I quote, perverse incentives. And these are corrupting the field of science. And uh, they explained what those perverse incentives are. It's competition for funding, pressure to publish, and academic prestige. And probably of those three incentives, public uh, pressure, competition for funding is the worst. So in every area in science where you see there's a lot of funding, you will see a lot of competition and you will see a lot of corruption in, in the research and in the pu pu published papers. And so if you want to know where the corruption in science goes today, you just ask yourself, well, where is all the funding going or where is most of the funding? You follow the funding, that exposes the corruption. And obviously cancer is one of those major areas of funding. <clears throat> so the question, is given this state of affairs, if this is how it is in science, where you can actually go to a lab and test the results, what about areas like in theology where we don't go to a lab and test the results? Like how bad a shape are we? What about our knowledge of God? And what is he revealed in the Bible? How can we distinguish between true and false teachings? Because you just don't go to a lab to, to do an experiment. Oh, okay, yeah, eschatology all sorted out now. Go to the lab number 23 down the hall, all the answers have been reproduced, verified, and now everything's good. No, it doesn't work that way. So this is this world in which we live. We have, we have problems of deception at the highest level in academia in the discipline that's supposed to have been the bastion of truth. And it's rampant there. And so what about us in theology and our Christian beliefs? So the next section here I want to look at discerning the difference or trying to discern between deception and truth. So the main idea here is that deception within Christianity comes in various forms and there is actually relatively simple ways to recognize it and safeguard against it. So you may have difficulty determining whether some paper in science journal was true or false because that's the technical aspects of things. But when it comes to theology and Christian beliefs, I think God has made it such that uh, every person has what we might call a built-in baloney detector. 
And so uh, when we actually, there's a lot to be said for baloney detectors. When you actually start to analyze it, what is it that makes, gives us these red flags? You start to discern certain principles to discern between truth and falsity. So let's, let's proceed. But the very first step you need to do is, is to figure out what is a true belief. If you have no idea what a true belief is, you don't have any definition for that, then you are truly lost. Because then it's impossible to distinguish what true beliefs and what are false beliefs when you don't even know what a true belief is. So true belief is true. This is defined. This is from the correspondence theory of truth. The philosophers, they got together and they decided to define true beliefs. And there's a few different definitions in there, but they didn't come up with anything new. It's what everybody already does every day before they cross the street. So you might believe that you're immortal and destructible, but you can test that belief out. In fact, if you're smart, you won't be testing it out when you go to cross the street. There's a speeding transit bus coming. Most people know don't step in front of that because there's a reality out there that it doesn't really matter what I believe about my toughness and indestructibility. There's a reality out there that defines what our true beliefs are not when it comes to crossing the street. A, true, a belief is true if and only if it corresponds to reality. And that'll be so straightforward. You say, well, why didn't I think of that? That's the way we always work in everyday life. And it is true. It's the way we normally work in everyday life, even when crossing the street. But let's think about that for a little bit more carefully here. Reality is the problem here. How do we, so to figure out if our beliefs are true, we have to have some grasp of what reality is. Now, in science, reality is nature and the laws of physics. But what about moral beliefs? There has to be a moral reality. And what about theological beliefs? There has to be, have to be some sort of theological reality out there. There actually has to be a real God out there that our beliefs can correspond to if they're going to be true. So there's the problem of identifying what the reality is. So when Jesus said that he is the truth, he didn't say he is true. That would have meant that there's some standard of truth out there, and when I compare myself with that standard, I'm true. He didn't say that. He said he is the truth. And what he's saying there, if, if you look at that definition of true beliefs and where reality comes in, he is saying he's the ultimate reality against which everything, all beliefs, must be compared, even scientific beliefs. He is the origin of the laws of physics and nature. So true belief, he's the ultimate reality when it comes to the creation of the world. He's the moral reality. He's the theological reality. He is the foundation of reality. So there is a reality out there we can compare our Christian beliefs to to see if they correspond to that. So in a sea of deception, rock to which we must be anchored is God in the Bible that he has given to us. Now I realize that's a huge statement of faith right there. The Bible and so um, many people would say, oh, you're, you're done right there. You, you're, if you're using the Bible as your reality, you're, you're toast. And so I would say, well, what is your reality that you're going to perceive? They'll say, well, it's science. And I'll say, well, what about nature over here? And there's the articles. You know, we, we got problems here. And if it is science, what is the reality in science? It's the laws of physics and the origin of nature. And Oh, well, then what is, what, how, where did these laws of physics come from? And you can go down in that discussion. Ultimately, you're going to have to put your faith in something. And I reached a point in my own Christian life where I said, I'm putting my faith in the Bible because that's where most of our information about God comes from. I'm going to just, I know I can't prove with 100% certainty that this is all true. I can't take it to the lab and do experiments. 
and um, those might be affected, the results might be affected by perverse incentives. I can't do that, but what I will do is I've read it enough and I've seen enough historical and, and uh, evidence to say this, is, this looks like it's on, on the up and up, and I've read it enough that it actually speaks in a very supernatural way. I reached a point, I put my faith in the Bible as reality, but it is the reality for, the, for theological knowledge because there's an even more foundational reality behind it, and that's God. The Bible is the Word of God. So that's my statement of faith here. So if you're a Christian, you're going to have to decide to put your faith in the Bible because if you don't put your faith in the Bible, then it's very difficult to say you are a believer. When A believer in what? Like, believer in what are, what are your true beliefs? So the first thing I'd like to talk about when it comes to deception is sophistry. So many of you may have read this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. And you might be thinking, I never took a course in philosophy. I'm safe there. I never even read an art a philosophical article, so I'm, I'm safe. Nope, afraid not, because you need to know what Paul was talking about here when he said, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. So a little background information here. There were a group of philosophers known as the Sophists. And the Sophists were traveling philosophers in ancient Greece and then later on in the Roman Empire who were experts in rhetoric. And rhetoric itself is written or verbal skills of persuasion and argumentation. I have a friend who actually has a PhD in rhetoric from the University of Waterloo. And uh, rhetoric is, there's nothing inherently wrong with rhetoric and skills and persuasion and argumentation, but um, it can be misused. And this is what the sophists were doing. Fancy, amazing talks and beguiling speeches and they would end up persuading you of something that if you actually analyzed what they said, you'd say, well, now how did I get to that conclusion again? So uh, I went to chat GPT. I use that sometimes if I just want a quick uh, like explanation for something. And you've got to be aware because chat GPT is not immune from misinformation itself. And to find that out, I asked some particularly fine-tuned questions to see if there was any biases built in. And, a lot of times, uh, you know, I was really impressed with some of the answers that it was able to compile. It just compiles information. But other times, I get, oh, I asked some particular questions, and there was very clearly a filter built into the algorithm to give this particular answer and not that one over there. So you got to be, but in the case of sophistry, I knew enough about sophistry to say, yeah, this is a good answer. So I'll quote ChatGBT here. It refers to sophistry, according to ChatGBT refers to the use of fallacious reasoning and manipulation of language to deceive or mislead others. It is a problem that has existed for centuries and continues to be relevant today in various forms. People may be, may be misled into making decisions based on false or distorted information leading to negative outcomes for individuals, communities, and society as a well. whole. So note that it continues to be relevant today. And so Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, when he's talking about the sophists, don't be taken captive through fancy philosophical... You don't even have to be philosophical. You can just watch a car advertisement on TV and be a victim of sophistry there because it's got nothing to do with how reliable that car is at all's appeal. And if you wanted to say, why did I buy this car again? Uh, what was the 
premises, and you're going to be in, in trouble sometimes. But sophistry is practiced with probably more sophistry today than any time in human history, simply because of the kind of media that we have today, the social media, the world wide web. Sophistry can just explode within seconds around the world. And it's every level of human institution is well immersed in sophistry, the government, the media, academia, everywhere you go. And unfortunately, it is also a problem within what we might broadly call Christianity, sophistry. So how do we know if we're seeing sophistry, if it's happening in front of us? And this is where we go to the baloney detector. You probably have a pretty good detector for sophistry already, although you may not know what made your baloney detector go off or why you had the red flag. So let's, let's take a look. Here's number one, symptom of sophistry. Entire books or one-hour videos that argue for a new or obscure teaching that's new in the history of the church or relatively new or sort of really off the beaten track. So uh, there's, there's the historical, you read the Bible and, and you hear the normal teachings and the face value understandings and so forth, but then along comes a new teaching and there's usually, I, I get on a regular basis people sending me, what do you think of this YouTube video and it's an hour and 40 minutes long and I really don't have time to watch and I, even if I do it double speed it's, uh, or entire books to come and support this new teaching when in fact it's brand new in the history of the church to say, what, where, where have we been for 2,000 years? And that doesn't mean how people behave for 2,000 years. That's a different problem, how people behave, even if they call themselves Christians. Don't, don't be fooled by that, because there's plenty of bad stuff going on in the history of the church. But just ask the person, is that what Jesus actually taught? So th this is one symptom. It doesn't mean that it's false, but as you get your red flag should go up if you see that there's a new teaching and it actually requires an entire book or a massive video to promote. Another example of uh, where you might be listening to sophistry is when the person is cherry-picking particular verses out of the Bible and either glossing over those that don't fit or ignoring them. But sometimes they're too big to ignore, and so an enormous amount of work takes place to explain away those passages that don't fit this kind of particular fringe or new teachings that you might hear about coming your way. Inserting phrases or not mentioning phrases that are actually there in the text. So you don't often see people actually rewriting the Bible and inserting phrases in there. But what I hear a lot is that people, let's say, for example, the Bible says, don't do such and such. But then this person over here says, well, actually, I think that there is an exception to that. And then they'll go on to some very philosophical or amazing highly technical argument of why. And so the bottom line is, is I know it says don't do such and such unless this and that is the case. So you go back to your Bible and you open it up and you read that passage and you'll notice that it doesn't say unless this or that is the case. It doesn't say that here. There's just a universal statement being made. Don't do such and such. Now, I'm going to come to accountability and how you understand the Bible shortly because just because you read and think you know what the Bible's saying, uh, Accountability is very important, so it's good to talk this over with other people. We'll come to that shortly. Don't trust your own understanding necessarily all the time. You're not infallible. Arguing against the face value understanding of a text. So I don't say literal here because people have this weird idea of literal that if I said his face was like a steel door, oh, well, literally, Kirk was saying a steel door was literally surgically implanted in the front of that guy's skull. That's not what I mean at all. It's a simile. And 
What I mean when I phrase value understanding of the text, there are rules of language and syntax that we use every day in conversations that we intuitively know when a person is using figures of speech, even if we don't know it's called a simile, for example. But we, we just have ability to communicate. So if you see, read the scriptures and you see a face value understanding of the text, not what you want it to say, uh, but a face value, and it's not just cherry-picking that verse for, as opposed to ignoring all the other ones. But if you see someone arguing against a face value interpretation or understanding of the text, doesn't mean they're wrong, but your red flag should go up and you should be very careful about what goes on next in that conversation. The most appealing type of sophistry occurs when you hear a brilliant persuasive speech, but afterwards when you attempt to construct a concise summary in terms of its conclusion, and then the premises that led to that conclusion, you find that, well, wait a sec, that conclusion doesn't actually follow from the premises. Or maybe there are premises there, but at least one of those premises is very shaky, very sketchy. And uh, that's when you begin to have to be aware that you might be listening to sophistry. Bad arguments or bad conclusions can be beautifully dressed up if you've got a PhD in rhetoric. Beautifully dressed up. If you're a scholar especially, you can use what's termed baffle gab. Look up baffle gab online, the definition of that. It's when you use all sorts of fancy technical language and, and, and references and appeals to this high-level academic stuff that most of us don't know what they're talking about in order to get a conclusion across. But if you really know your stuff, you should be able to summarize that conclusion. No matter how brilliant you are, what kind of an education you have, you should be able to summarize that conclusion in a simple, here's the premises and here's how I, I arrived at this conclusion, if you know it well enough. So um, a closer related thing would be, which scholar should I believe? So I often hear this. This scholar says that, and that scholar over there says the opposite. How am I supposed to know what to believe? And it is a, a good, very good question to ask. So let's just take a look at that. First of all, there are legitimate Christian discussions. Eschatology is an obvious one because in the last chapter of Daniel he's told to seal these things up until the last days. So there are honest discussions that can take place in eschatology. And then there's a thousand other things. For example, just yesterday morning, uh, Patty ha said uh, Kirk, and she has a way of saying Kirk. There's a particular inflection that if she says it that way, I know that she's got a Bible question. <laughs> And then we have an excellent discussion, and we had a, 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 I love this. I love that I can have, we can have excellent discussions at home. And we discussed some of this, a verse in, the, in Genesis, because she's helping to teach a, a Bible study in Genesis, and a verse in Genesis, and correlate that with a verse in the New Testament. And not, you know, I had never even thought about that before, the correlation between the two. So we had a discussion. At the end of about 10 minutes, I said, well, I think I'm leaning this direction. And Patty says, well, actually, I think I'm leaning the other way. And that's fine, because <laughs> you could go either way on this. And that's an example of just thousands of legitimate discussions we as believers can have within the Scriptures. And in those cases, you know, it's not a clear thing. Like if the Bible says, don't commit adultery, well, it's pretty clear there. There shouldn't be a whole lot of obscurity around that to have legitimate maybe it's okay to commit adultery no but there's so many other things the bible does talk about that we enjoy discussing so i just want to put that disclaimer out there okay when we come to this problem here but the mere fact that a scholar is speaking or writing 
to me, I've spent enough time in the academic world that it means absolutely nothing. And I don't care whether he was a scholar or some of the hired hand that worked for my dad on the farm, who got, there was, we had one that made, never made it past grade four. I don't care. It doesn't mean a thing just because a scholar says that or this person says that, and I don't write off what a child will say either. I've, there's been a few occasions in my life when a child has just floored me by some, pray, some question that they asked. So you never know where it's coming from. But there is a quote, uh, there was one by, uh, I think it's Grisham, that says, if you're gonna be stupid, you gotta be tough. And if you wanna understand what that means, just go to YouTube, type in fail, and then you'll see why you have to be tough if you're gonna be stupid because you're gonna be in trouble. But there's a corollary here when we listen to scholars, and that is, if you're going to be wrong, you gotta be brilliant. And so it takes a brilliant person to really make a wrong piece of theology sound convincing. That's sophistry. So don't just accept it simply because a scholar said this or that, and you don't, and neutrality isn't the case either. I don't know what to think, therefore, you know, they can't agree. Because a lot of times, not all arguments are created equal. In fact, most of the time when you have someone say, I think the Bible is saying this, and somebody's saying the polar opposite, usually one side, the weight is not 50-50. It's massively weighted in favor of one of the two. So which scholar should I believe? Here's the solution. It's available to every one of us. The brethren, in the book of Acts, it says, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now keep in mind, this is the apostle Paul himself in Berea. And if these were described as noble-minded because they searched the scriptures to see if what the Apostle Paul was saying was true, then if the Apostle Paul is subject to analysis, then every scholar is. And that goes for anything that I say up here. Don't, in fact, I will confess. I will confess that I've actually got a degree in philosophy. So <laughs> you gotta be aware of what I say. You have to detest is what Kirk says actually true and you have to search the scriptures. And hopefully, hopefully I steer clear of sophistry. So there's a solution. We need to be studying and getting a good knowledge of what the Bible actually says so that if we hear some false teaching, some new thing coming out of the fringes of Christianity, we'll be saying, oh, I got red flags about this, and I think it, I have a problem with that, that verse over there. It isn't really in this passage. How do they explain that? And I think he's just trying to explain away such and such. So that's a possible solution, one of many. Now, just because a, there are plenty of good scholars, by the way, and we'll come back to that. A third thing is the principle of parsimony. That's given two explanations for the same thing. The simpler explanation that fully explains whatever is being discussed is more likely to be correct than one that is more complicated. That's the principle of parsimony. It's actually used a lot. You hear that, you hear that term in philosophy. But you also hear it in more a colloquial way in Occam's Razor. If you've ever heard of Occam's Razor, it's the same thing. The simplest explanation that fully explains whatever you're discussing is more likely to be true than some amazingly complicated one coming off out of left field. There's a verse in Proverbs that I like, uh, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. 
And that goes for a lot of things. In general, the more you talk, the more likely it is you're going to offend somebody or say something wrong. But it also goes for explanations. Now, there are some, not everything has simple explanations. There are things that will require books. It will require a lifetime of study to really understand the correlations, the underlying correlations behind simple things that can be readily understood. But why, is the, why did it say that? And if you want to know the rationale, you may be involved in a lifetime of study. But in principle, if there's two explanations and there's one very straightforward one that actually fully explains everything, and then there's another one that doesn't, but it's really complicated, or that it does, but is also complicated, probably safer to go with a simpler one. So the application is the more work a person must do to explain their view when there's a simpler, straightforward alternative available, the less likely it is that they are on the right track. So let me give you some background information for an actual example. But first of all, you need to know the background information here. So in the Corinthian church, uh, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul said this, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, let me just pause right there. So he's got this list here. And probably, if we were honest, when we read this list, we should be getting a little uncomfortable because chances are I, uh, we've messed up at least one area on this list. For example, Jesus says, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. Well, it says the adulterers are on this list. So there's a number of things that you cannot practice, continue to practice if you claim to follow Jesus Christ. But let's continue on. It says, and that is what some of you wear. And that's good news because what he's saying is that you might be on this list or you might have been on this list. In fact, anybody in the whole world can actually come into the kingdom of God, even if they're on the list. And um, probably most of us have done things that put our names on this list. He says, that were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there's clearly an expectation here that there should be some changes that are to occur in our life. Now, those changes might not be instantaneous. There may be uh, a weak Achilles heel in your life that God may permit you to struggle and battle with for months, maybe even years. But that's fine. You're battling. You're not practicing these things and just saying that's fine, no problem. But there's one thing that we can be reasonably confident as is we as Christians cannot endorse the practice of the things on this list here. So with that in mind, the idea that if it's on the list, we may be struggling with those things as believers, but where we definitely do not want to practice, we're looking for the Lord, that's, that's a different thing. But we shouldn't be endorsing these things. So I was on a nice walk last summer along a nice stream in Alberta, a clear, slow-moving stream. The grass was lush and drooping into the stream, and the laurel-leaf willows were just putting the whole... It was a beautiful place, and then I got the news. The news was that one of... A person I've known for many years, for decades who was, uh, used to dearly love the Lord, was a relatively very orthodox in his Christian beliefs, had performed a marriage between two men in a church. And I, I thought about this for months, and I thought, I, I, I know I need to talk to him. But I took months to do it, and I finally, we weren't, we, he lives far away, I couldn't talk to him in person, so I crafted an email, and he responded with this question. 
He said, uh, this is at the end of the email, he said in his response, he says, although you are not convinced by more scholarly biblical positions that affirm or at least don't oppose what he had done, why do you think so many good biblically informed faithful folks are? And that was a good question. It's a decent question. It's one I've wrestled with for decades. Why do people believe the things they do? And so I've continued to think about this question. I'm still working on my response. I hope to have it to him this week. It's a very carefully crafted response, but one of those things is I will be invoking the principle of parsimony. And it goes like this. Our common ground between my friend and myself is that for what he did, there's a collection of passages in the scriptures. And so one of the first, and this is our common ground, this is both he and I started with. And for this collection of passages, one of the first things you can do is sort them into negative, neutral, and positive. And in this case, 100% of all the passages go into the negative category. So if you're going to argue that it's okay to actually affirm these things and practice and publicly promote and do what he did, you're going to have to a lot of work ahead of you. So, the simple explanation when you take the common ground is that it's not morally allowed by God. That's the, it's a direct conclusion from the passages. Very little, if any, work at all required. And that conclusion is held by people of all sorts of different ethnic groups throughout history, around the world. It's so straightforward, this is the general conclusion. No work at all. But his approach is an extremely highly complicated explanation requiring an entire book, literally a book. There are two books I could refer. Um, I've worked in meticulously through one of those book-length series of arguments requiring an enormous amount of work to conclude that what he did is actually endorsed by God. So which, which, which should we go with here? Using the principle of parsimony, parsimony, we would go with a simpler explanation that fully explains the text, and that would be that we ought not to be publicly promoting this. The complicated one is the opposite conclusion, but it requires an enormous amount of work. That would be a time where you can apply the principle of parsimony. But there's some cautions in what I've said thus far. Number one, not every well-done or fascinating talk, video, or book is sophistry. There are really good ones out there. And how do we find those? Get to that in a minute. Number two, not every article written by a scholar is deception. There are great scholars out there honest scholars who love the Lord and do their best. So how do we, what do we do there? And number three, not every explanation is short and simple. And uh, I could give you a lot of examples in, in theology that they're not short and simple. So the last section here, safeguards from deception. The main idea here is that personal study of the Bible coupled with mutual accountability in your understanding is key. That second aspect is very important to bring into line as you read and study the scriptures. Obviously, we need to become lifelong students of the Bible. It's absolutely essential. I don't care if you can read, you should, and you're a believer, follower of Christ, you should be spending time alone in the Word each day. So my mother got me started when I was eight and a half, and all my sisters, and we got our kids studied started around that age, plus or minus, depending on your child's reading ability. But if, you're, if you can read, you should be spending time in the Word. And I, you don't have to be a brilliant reader. You don't have to be a brilliant scholar. No, God never made it that way. He made it so that we could enter into the kingdom of God with a faith as a child, and we could read His Word and not have to rely on the elites, the academic 
elites to get a proper, correct understanding. No, he made the Bible so we can all understand it. There are no safe shortcuts, by the way. Uh, I see a lot of guys in the university group that I've worked with for many years. Around the age of 19, they'll buy a book on systematic theology. They'll read that, and then they say, oh, this explains everything, shortcut. And then they commit themselves to believing that systematic theology, and they'll spend the rest of their lives trying to make the Bible fit that systematic theology. Um, but if you do not have sufficient knowledge to know what the Bible actually teaches, how will you know which books, whether you're being misled or not? Now I want to come back to a solution to that problem. But in general, God expects us to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Here's one. Your commandments, God says in the book of Psalms 19, 119, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. He's talking, this is David, uh, I think it was David, I can't remember for sure, who's credited at the beginning of that psalm. But he's saying, this can be you. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I've observed your precepts. But... We need mutual accountability in what we think we, the Bible is saying to us. What I mean by that is we read, study, and meditate on the Scriptures. We must be aware that we are not infallible in our own understandings. I, am, I right here, am not infallible. I am absolutely certain that I, I misunderstand passages, that I have incomplete understandings of other concepts. I'm, therefore, accountability in what you think you understand is important. And there's, here's, I'll suggest two ways to get that accountability. Number one, there's an accountability in mutual discussions of what you're learning from the Bible, like we have a Bible study at our house every second Thursday night, and we're working through the book of Colossians. So someone might say, or I might say, I think this is, did you notice this? And I think it, might, it looks like it's saying such and such, and somebody else would say, yeah, but what about this verse over here? Did you consider that passage there? Good point. And so there's a mutual accountability so that if I get, I start heading off into left field, I get too far off track and people notice, well, Kirk's not taking consideration this, that, and the other thing. Mutual accountability means that those people can say this, that, and the other thing. What about this, that, and the other thing? So there's that mutual accountability. This is why I highly recommend these small group studies. This study that we lead every second Thursday night is part of the many that Woodside has but it's full, so <laughs> uh, it's pretty much full. So, um, but get involved in these. Get involved in these here in Woodside. Secondly, there's mutual accountability in what you think the Bible is teaching in good biblical teaching, such as the sermons that we hear on Sunday morning from the pastor or the elders who themselves are mutually accountable to each other and to all of us. So if I ever say anything wrong uh, or it's something you question, please... Ask me a question on that. But there's mutual accountability here, and eventually there's trust. You begin to see there's people here, and the pastor and the elders, there's people here that I think I can trust. And if I want to find out about what should my systematic theology be, or about this, or what about angels, or whatever, you can talk to these people and ask, what would you recommend? So that if I am going to read a book and take a shortcut, and instead of, because we're not all starting from scratch here, there are people who have spent many years already and are, and are in the position of elders in our church that can probably direct us in a good direction. But nobody's perfect, and we all have to remember that. But 
as the years go by, that trust is built. Third, be teachable. Every time you open your Bible, put everything you think you know and believe on the table, so to speak. Now, that might sound really dangerous, but it's not. It's only dangerous to false beliefs. The true beliefs will continue to get strengthened and more, rich, more richly supported. You're spending time, you also got to realize, when you spend time in the, in the Word, just on a daily basis, you are spending time in the presence of the one who gave it to us. And you are under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit who will teach you. Of course, there's always the problem of your own biases and misunderstandings, and that's where mutual accountability comes into play within the local church here. I want to close with this final food for thought here. Is it, I don't care. If you can read, you are ready. Or if you can listen, even if you can't read but you're old enough to, or you have a reading disability, for example, you hear better. If you are old enough to, or equipped enough to be able to read or listen to the Word of God, we really do need to be spending time with Him. And it, don't ever underestimate the massive cumulative effect that months and then years in your own daily time alone with the Lord in prayer and reading His Word will have. The, the, the safe, the, my safeguard, a huge safeguard for me in the world of deception, I assume I'm being deceived every day. I assume that I'm slowly being uh, heading in the direction the culture wants me to go simply because I live in my culture. It's a steady crosswind all the time, and I need the Word of God, and I need God to be renewing my mind daily. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you that you, have, that you are there. You have given us the Holy Spirit who will lead us into all truth. And um, you are not selective. It's not a domain of the smartest or the elite. But it's for all of us that you will lead us into all truth. And you've given us your word that we can spend time in and enjoy and slowly immerse ourselves in over the years. I thank you that we're not just helpless victims of, of deception, but we can walk through this culture and navigate our way through this world uh, and with true beliefs, beliefs that uh, are on what you call the narrow way that leads to life. And I pray that you'd keep us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.